<laughs> but uh, the week before that, we, were, we got to about verse 4 and we started getting into this, uh, seeing the safety that is in Christ, the true ark, the better ark. We found how this picture of Noah's life is one of abiding as you and I are called to abide in Christ, to trust in His daily presence, to trust in His daily uh, provision for us, and that we are to be absolutely dependent upon God for every need, and it's only only in the safety of Christ that we find refuge in the midst of the storms of life and while the judgment around us rages. And we're thankful that uh, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are put our trust in Jesus' death, burial, and His resurrection, that you and I are not reserved for a coming day of uh, the great tribulation, but you and I will be taken and, and preserved out of it. And so we're looking forward to that day where the Lord will bring about the great day of consummation where He will judge the wicked, but He will preserve the righteous. And we're only righteous because of His righteousness that He's given to us. And we want to praise the Lord for that. And tonight as we look at this passage, maybe look and see not just a man named Noah and his family that get on a boat that God will use to preserve mankind, but may we see that all of this is pointing to something that is coming down the road that will be much greater May we also look at this as pointing to a judgment that is going to be upon this world that is going to be much greater than even this was. May we look as well at something far greater that is woven throughout all of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and that is the redemptive person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 1 tells us, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou in all thy house from the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts, that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon, all the, upon the face of all the earth. And here's where we'll pick up tonight. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts and of the beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah, and into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. As we pick up here in verse number four, we see the impending judgment that is coming. And God calls and tells Noah as he is uh, got on the boat here, as he's about to do. And we see, for yet seven days, and then I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days. And 40 nights. We see that God is the righteous judge. He has specifically laid out his law and the consequences of breaking it from the very beginning. There is, as the Bible puts it, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that have an excuse before God. Now, whether you're Jew, Gentile, or whether you don't identify as either one of them, you are not. You are not innocent before God. As a matter of fact, there was only one innocent before God. His name was Jesus. But then what, what took place on the cross is that. God the Father declared Jesus the Son guilty so that you and I, when we put our trust in Him, could be declared free. That we could be declared not guilty as we put our trust in the personal work of Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice and His blood that cleanses us from sin. But as we look at this tonight, what we're going to see is several things about this. It's not only that there is an impending judgment, but God here, as He pronounces judgment, is coming once more in verse number 4. Before he pronounces the judgment, what does he pronounce? Seven days of grace. He pronounces seven days more of opportunity for an unrepentant world that has had already about 120 years. People say that God is only angry 
only wrathful, only vengeful. People view God as this big man upstairs with a big long beard and a great big mallet just seeking whoever He can whack. What do we find here? We find a gracious, merciful, patient, long-suffering, always ready to forgive God. And God didn't have to. Matter of fact, God was just if even Noah and the others didn't make it. God would have been just if Adam, and, if Adam and Eve were squashed there in the garden and He crumbled it all up and said, enough with this. But God is merciful. Now His mercy does not negate His justice, nor does His justice negate His mercy. As a matter of fact, when we look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, when we look at the cross, what we find is the perfect strike of justice and the perfect gift of mercy. Justice is served so that mercy can be given to us. Now this is what we must see. This is the theme of the Scriptures. This is the story of all mankind, of all of human history pointing us to Christ. Pointing us to a a God who desires to redeem His creation. To reconcile us by the blood of His cross. Another seven days of grace are given before God brings the flood of the deluge to destroy every living substance, as it is said, that He has created. One commentator writes, A week for a world to repent. What a solemn pause. Did they laugh and ridicule His folly still? He whose eyes saw and whose heart felt the full amount of humanity and uh, human iniquity and perverseness has told us of their reckless disregard. As a matter of fact, what we find is that later on in the Scriptures, over in 2 Peter chapter 3, as Peter is ending his uh, passage, what he does in his letter is he talks about what you and I are looking forward to. If you want to, I'll just read it for you tonight. So you don't have, I didn't hear any pages turning, so I'll just read. Y'all just assumed I'd read. I will. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 3 tonight. Verses 1 through 8 tell us this. Peter writes, The second epistle, beloved, now I write unto you, in both which I stir up your, your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Notice that Peter recognizes the Old and New Testament as the sufficient and final word of God. He puts it all together. This is why we don't separate or unhitch from the Old Testament. This is why we don't pick one apostle over another. This is why we take the Word of God as the Word of God. It is all sufficient. It must be. And if it's not, why would we take one part and not the rest? If that's the case, then all of it is not the Bible. And all of it would not be God's Word. And we'd be in a mess in the first place, wouldn't we? Now, verse number 3 says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. So what's coming in the last days? He makes it very clear. There's going to be scoffers walking after their own lusts. Uh, Let me ask you this. Are we living in the last days? Yes, we have been since Jesus ascended unto the Father. How about this? Do you think Noah felt like he was living in the last days? Absolutely. You know why? Because he was. He was living in the last days of the pre-flood world. Noah was going to be Noah, his wife, His three boys and their wives, eight people, were going to be the only people that knew what the world was like before the flood and the only people that knew what it was like after. You know what it was like before the flood? Sinful and wicked. You know what it was like after the flood? Sinful and wicked, only shaped different. That's what the world was like. 
And that's what the world will remain until there is another coming judgment and Christ steps foot back on this earth where He will bring peace and it will be by His own sword that comes from His mouth. He will rule and reign with a rod of iron and He will rule justly. He will rule mercifully. He will rule righteously because that's who He is. Verse number 4, And saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. No, willingly ignorant of. Notice that. That by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. What's that sound like? Sounds like the Genesis flood, doesn't it? Because that's what it is. He says, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved not unto water, but unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. That verse is often used by many to say that there is a day-age theory or that really when the Bible says in the beginning God created things in the evening and morning were the first day, well that could be an age of a thousand or a million or a billion years. That is an total misunderstanding of one genesis and understanding the hebrew and then two as well understanding the simplicity of what peter's talking about he's saying from god's perspective one day it's nothing to him a thousand years to god it's nothing to him for you and i a thousand years in this life is like a day for god it's nothing god is far outside of our time and our restraints because he is god he's the one that made those restraints for our good in the first place And what we see is that Peter is making it abundantly clear that the New Testament Christians are awaiting a future judgment that's going to come. And later on as you read it, that chapter gets better and better, gooder and gooder. If you read it, what it talks about is that we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth. Now what we're going to see after the flood is going to be a picture of what this is. It's going to be a refreshment, a a, a time for replenishing, a, a time where there will be peace. And there was peace on earth after the flood until... The same ones that got on the boat got off the boat. And they continued the sin that there was. This gives me hope. You know why? Because Noah sinned. I sinned too. Yet Noah found grace and Noah was counted faithful and Noah is found to be in the hall of faith. You and I look up to Noah. We we give our kids little pictures to draw in Sunday school of Noah in the boat and all that stuff as inaccurate as they all are. But we give it to him and we think about Noah as being this great man of God. What we find is that yet he and his boys we're sinners. God doesn't call perfect men. He calls imperfect men to trust in His perfection. And God does His perfect work through imperfect people. But they must be available and they must be faithful. Simply put, they must trust the Lord and what He has said and what He has said He will do and simply trusting in His will and in His worth of who God is. They trust the very character of God. That's why it was accounted unto Noah for righteousness. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and Joseph and Moses and Aaron and Joshua and, and, and David and all down the line to you and I. Now as we continue on tonight, what we're going to see is this. Let me get my pages right here. As we see this fall coming and this judgment coming as we continue on here in verse number four he says for seven days here's this continued time of grace for god to offer he says and i will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights 
want to point out what Scroggy writes sort of about this passage. He, he puts out some good things here. He says, Twice man failed God and twice God judged man, but He did not abandon him. The destruction of all flesh except Noah and his family was necessary for its preservation. Only out of death could there come new life. The grave of the old world was the cradle of the new. Now this is interesting because it connects the flood with what is coming, the future tribulation of an absolute judgment upon the world. But even more so is out of that judgment, God will restore by His grace. There will be a great time of peace on earth. The literal earth. Ruled by Jesus literally on this earth called the millennial reign for a thousand years. Why do we believe in that being a literal time? Because it's literally right here. It's right here. We're not going to allegorize what God has made very plain and clear. We want to understand it in its context and the way that... The, normally the plain meaning is the plain meaning, right? This is what God puts all throughout Old and New Testament showing that this day is coming. It's the Jewish people, it's what they're looking forward to in the first place, but what they don't understand is they've rejected the Messiah once, they're going to trust in a false Messiah, they're going to go through tribulation, they're going to be purified when the Messiah that they crucified 2,000 years ago returns in the clouds, they will see Him, rejoice in Him, repent, be born in a day, and they will get to be a part of that day when Jesus sits foot back in the same place where He had ascended to the Father from, and He will rule from Jerusalem, which has always been the capital of where God had intended, not just the capital of Israel, but the capital of Zion itself. But this is important tonight to notice this, about this idea of life out of death. Our salvation as individual believers is like this as well. There is only true Christian life when there is a death to self. We only live in the new when we die to the old. We've got to understand this about our Christian life. You and I often like to live in the pre-flood world. We were comfortable in the pre-flood world. We were comfortable with our sin. We were comfortable with our life. And we want the safety of the boat, but we also want to enjoy the rain. Now, here's the thing. As a kid, I remember this very much so. We're always curious as children, aren't we? Right? So curious that we get in trouble or that we nearly die from it. Right? Now, I remember as a kid, one of my favorite things to do is ride down the road is to sit there in the back seat, and when a storm comes up on the interstate, I love sticking my arm out the window. Any of y'all do that? Okay, a couple of you. All right, y'all just looking at me like I'm half crazy. That's fine. Yeah, that's right. Do that again, Doug. Yes, that thing. You take your arm like this, and, and then it just naturally does like that. And, or you can stop and feel the force, and all, all kinds of stuff. You, you know, I, I guess me and Doug, we got the same brains. That's a good thing, right? But hey, will you do that? And what do you think? When that rain comes, though, I love feeling when that rain would come. You get a couple drip drops and you feel it and your arms cooling off, especially in the summertime, right? Air conditioning ain't working. Your family stinks on a long car ride to the beach or something. The rain comes. You stick your arm out and man, it cools you right off. You got one cool arm and one sweaty arm over here. And this arm is nice and cool, but it's getting beat by that rain. But you know you love sticking your arm out in that rain. How about this, maybe for the rest of you guys that aren't so weird like me and Doug, I guess. You're sitting on your front porch and the rain comes in the, the storm of the summer and you, you like to smell that rain as it comes and it starts to hit that hot pavement. And, and out, from the, out from your porch, what do you do? You stick your arm out just to feel that coolness, right? Now why do we do that? Maybe not you. I'll have to find another illustration for you. As lost cause. <laughs> I've got nothing for you. That's all i got. 
If you want an illustration for you, you've got to find a better preacher. I don't know what to tell you. But you stick, stick your arm out underneath that front porch and you feel that coolness because you want to enjoy it. You don't want to go out all the way. Why? Because you don't want to get soaked. But you want to feel it just enough. Cools you off. Now, the reason why I say all that is to say this. You and I, sometimes after we get saved, we still like to put our arm out in the world. We still like to put our arm out and we like to feel what the world was like. Now notice this, I don't find one time, nor do I think we would even find a time where Noah is going to be sticking his head out the ark. Nor do I think we find a time where Noah is going, I wonder what that rain feels like out here. I wonder what that hundreds of foot of flood water feels like. I'll bet it would be fun to jump in. We don't find that. Why? Because he knew that his safety was in the ark of Christ. He knew that his safety was in that ark. To get out of that thing is to get out of the will of God. Even this, let me ask you, do you think it's God's will for you to put your arm out in the rain and back? No. No, He wants us to enjoy the safety that He is. And so when we see this idea of life coming out of death, the only way that we'll enjoy the Christian life is when we learn to put our old nature to death. When we see that we've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live. How does that make sense? Well, it's because it's not us, but it's He who lives. Right? Because he, get, he loved us and He gave Himself for us. Now it's Christ's life living in us, through us, and for us. I believe that Noah's life here, even in just this verse, is a beautiful picture of what the Christian life is to look like. A life of abiding. A life that is dependent upon the Lord and His safety alone. One that is living a life in the new and away with the old. Now, furthermore, as we look in this verse... We always think of this of forty days and forty nights. Now, I remember when Kimmy and I moved to Danville. Here's your illustration that you'll get. All right, when Kimmy and I moved to Danville, I'm gonna hear about it. When we moved to Danville, it was uh, middle of February. It was right around my birthday, and we moved to Danville, and it rained from the night we moved, which was about eight o'clock at night. It was sleeting and raining all the way down. We moved down to Danville. We go up. We're staying in our apartment downtown. We're in, I mean, it's a brand new place, brand new apartment, brand new smell, brand new puppy, brand new everything, right? Well, it rained for it seemed 40 days and 40 nights. The only time it stopped raining was on my birthday morning. It stopped raining for the matter of a couple hours for me to take a walk, go get a cupcake, and come back. And then it kept on raining. You ever seen that time where it feels like it rain forever and forever? Well, you and I have never quite experienced even, I don't think, a full 40 days and 40 nights of rain. And what we're going to see here as we go throughout this chapter is this is not just a mere rain. This is not a drizzle. It ain't spitting the rain. It ain't trying to rain. This is water coming from above and below and everywhere else in between. This is something that we've never seen nor experienced and to be honest, there's nothing that we can do to equate it or to wrap our minds around what this would even look like. But notice that before God says that's going to happen, He still gave those seven days of grace and mercy. But this idea of 40, I want to look at it. Let me drop down to the bottom of the paragraph and then I'll come back up. Let's make sure though that we're looking at some numerology in the Bible that is you got a couple of ologies that we can talk about. Typology, which is looking at some of the types, like the ark is a type or a picture of Christ. 
Then we have numerology, which is this is looking at the study of numbers. How many of y'all like numbers? Okay, a couple of y'all. How many, how, let me ask you this. Whose favorite book of the Bible is the book of numbers? I thought so. Y'all aren't supposed to have favorites. What's wrong with y'all? You're supposed to say the whole thing's our favorite. Right? Now, the numbers is, is sort of a difficult thing for those that don't like it, but the study of numbers is important. The, the Lord is uh, one who is a God of order. He is the one who has established all things, knows all things, and he established all things because he knew all things before he established them. And so God is one God, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, co-equal in power and, and, and everything, and yet we find that they are distinct. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We find the number seven in this passage, in this very verse, seven being often used as the number of completion or perfection. And here now we get to a new number, and this is going to be an important number throughout the rest of the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, and even into the life of Christ. It's a number 40. Now, I say this because I want to make sure that we can study typology and we can study numerology, but we must not become obsessed with typology or numerology to where everything becomes a type or every number becomes something. Because this is how you get those wackadoodle shows on History Channel about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning where it's talking about aliens and the Bible and all kinds of stuff. It don't match, right? So we've got to understand that we can go and take something that is usable as a tool that helps us understand the Bible, and we can take it too far, all right? So let's make sure we keep it in the bounds of the Scripture. Now, as we look at the Scripture, the number 40 is important in the Bible. It shows times of trial, temptation, judgment, and probationary periods of testing. Here, I just got you a little link from gotquestions.org. Now, that website, every, they've got a bunch of articles for all sorts of questions, they try to give a pretty good, and they, they stick to a pretty good conservative view. But like I say, as with any tool, you can't necessarily find one that's got every right answer all the time. Even I'm not right all the time. Believe it or not, I know you're surprised just as much as I am, right? But here's what they have to say. They put together not necessarily an exhaustive list of all the things that are with the number 40 in the Bible, but they put together a good wide group, and that's why I wanted to include it for you. In the Old Testament, when God destroyed the earth with water, He caused it to rain 40 days, 40 nights. We've read that before. Genesis chapter 7 here, verse number 4, verse number 12. After Moses killed the Egyptian, he fled to Midian, where he spent 40 years in the desert. Matter of fact, matter of fact, matter of fact Moses was on Mount Sinai 40 days, 40 nights, but 40 was important with the life of Moses. He had 40, 40, and 40 throughout his life. Uh, the, the way you can sort of look at the life of Moses as, we, as you study uh, in, his, in his books we also find this, that uh, not only that Moses was on Mount Sinai 40 days and 40 nights, but Moses interceded on Israel's behalf for 40 days and 40 nights in Deuteronomy. The law specified a maximum number of lashes a man could receive for a crime, setting the limit at 40. The Israelite spies took 40 days to spy out Canaan. The Israelites wandered for 40 years. Before Samson's deliverance, Israel served the Philistines for 40 years. Goliath taunted Saul's army for 40 days before David arrived to slay him. When Elijah fled from Jezebel, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horb. And how about this? How about when Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit? How long was he out there in temptation? That's right. Now, this is important, but this is something that we should not become obsessed with. But this is important because it shows us that God is a God of order and that when we see these things in the Scriptures, normally they're there not just to tell us about something that we should know, but they're telling us about God and what He's doing. When we study the Bible, we have to ask ourselves several questions. And I hope that you not only have a time of prayer and devotions 
certainly in the morning to start your day, but perhaps in the evening as well to end your day. There's nothing like ending and beginning your day with the Lord. Certainly spending time throughout the day praying and thanking Him for things and asking Him for needs and strength to go on. But I want to encourage you in your study of the Bible, not merely reading, but in your study of the Bible to ask certain questions as you read. One, what is the context of this passage that I just read? Meaning, what in the world is it saying? What's happening before, during, and after? That's a good way to determine what you've just read. What happened before, what happened to while I just read it, and what's happening after. That helps to put those pieces together. Then ask yourself, well, what is God doing in this passage, in this chapter, in this book? Right? And we begin to see a whole lot more. And it's a whole, what we find is that as we study the Bible, the Bible is a whole lot less about us and a whole lot more about Him. It's a whole lot more about what God is doing in the grand scheme of His plan to reconcile a people unto Himself by the blood of His Son. What we find is that this is ultimately God's plan and there is nothing that has happened from Genesis to Revelation and that's including our life today in the age of which we live that is taking God by surprise or that God does not know about. Everything in your life God is using for your good, for His glory, even the suffering, and we find that all throughout the Bible with all these characters, that God is not just giving us a list of people or, or a novel of characters to study. He's showing us who He is. So ask yourself those questions, right? What's happening before, during, after? What is God doing here, right? What is God designing for me to know? And what in the world does this mean for me right now? And ultimately, no matter what passage you go to, what you're going to find is this. What does this mean for me right now? It comes down to pretty simple. You ready? Here's about every passage that you can read in the Bible, and here's what it's going to tell you that you need to do. You ready for your application? Repent, believe the Gospel. <laughs> Look to Jesus. It's been said a million times over by a whole lot of people, a whole lot smarter and better preachers than me, and a whole lot older too, and most of them are dead, but they've been saying this for a long time. When you read the Bible, preach the Bible, study the Bible, make a beeline for the cross. We've got to get to Christ. Why? Because this book is about Christ. Now, as we move forward in this, we see that yet seven days, God says He'll cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And notice, every living substance... Now, you can study that in Hebrew. You can go and you can read in the Septuagint in the Greek translation. You can read it there. You can read it in a bunch of different ways and you can parse it all out and it's going to mean this. Every living substance, everything, whether it's plant life, whether it's human life, whether it's animal life, if it's not on the ark with Noah, it will die. And let's put it simply, everything that was not on the boat with Noah did die. There were no survivors. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? Because what you and I don't see is we don't see the great population of a billion plus people on the earth. You and I don't think about these sorts of things. Could you imagine this if you woke up one day and you and seven other people were the only ones alive? That'd be kind of scary, wouldn't it? You walked outside your house you didn't see no more birds, hear no chirping, didn't see no squirrels, no rabbits, no deer, didn't see any cattle out in the field. Matter of fact, all you saw was just carcasses. You'd be wondering if something was up. Matter of fact, you'd probably cover up your nose like that and think something's in the air, wouldn't you? You'd be awful concerned. Everything's dead. Why am I alive? What's happened? Here, this is not some airborne disease. 
What this is is the mighty hand of God judging the creation that has rebelled against Him. And what we find is that even this, His creation, from the animals going on two by two, obey Him, and what we find is that the only thing that is going to be safe is that which is held in His hand in the ark. God has two hands, if you will. And we've talked about this. He has the one that is withholding His wrath and the one that is bidding, come, get on the boat. And eventually, this one stops and this one gets let down. That's what's happening. Today, we live in the same world where this is still happening and one day, this will end and this will drop. This is why we had better be on the ark. We had better know Christ. Right? Now, verse 5. He says, And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. Boy, what a thing it would be to be said about your life and my life. And they did all that the Lord commanded them. I know one thing. That can't be written about me yet. Because thus far, I have not done everything that God has commanded. Matter of fact, there's been many things that God has commanded that I have not done. There's been many things that God commands that we don't want to do. As a matter of fact, God doesn't command everything that we want. He commands everything that He wants. That's why it's His will, not our will be done. Now, notice this as we get into this. Noah's faithful obedience. Noah obeys God's Word by faith. That's the only way that you can obey God in the first place. Your flesh will never obey God. Your flesh will only obey the God that it knows, and that's itself. Faith alone is what obeys God alone. Everything that God required of Noah, Noah obeyed by faith. Faith without obedience is not faith, by the way. We've got to understand that. Real obedience is the fruit of faith. Where there is faith, there will be obedience. It is a natural fruit of the Spirit of God. It is, a nat- it is your new nature in Christ to obey God. The reason why you couldn't do it before is because you did not know God. You were not in Christ. You were still and only in your flesh. This is why our flesh profiteth nothing. Not a little. Nothing. This is why Jesus tells the disciples, without me, you can do nothing. This is why the only way that we will ever be used of God is when we put our flesh to death and we take the little bit of faith that we have, which even the most faithful person that you know in your life doesn't even have the faith the size of a mustard seed. We give it to God. God takes it as little and microscopic as our faith is sometimes and He uses it. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Imagine what our life would be like if our faith was the size of a mustard seed. None of us have quite arrived to that place yet. If that were the case, mountains would be moving, wouldn't they? Nevertheless, God sees our little faith. And he says, I'll take it from here. That's the beauty of faith in the first place. I can't, but God can. If I could, then I wouldn't need faith and I wouldn't need God. This is why we must trust Him for all things. Faith obeys the Word of God. This is God's will for our life. It is for our good and for His glory that we trust and obey. We even sing songs about it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. This is not just a simple hymn for us to sing. This is not just a silly song. This is our life. This is the life of the believer. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. 
Without a trust, there will be no obedience. Without faith, there is no doing the will of God. It is the will of God that we would trust in Him and depend upon Him for every moment of our life. It is not God's will for you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just give it all you got and swing for the fences. That sounds contrary to what most of us have been taught, doesn't it? Most of us have been taught that, spiritually speaking, that all of us are just to try real hard and God will sort it out and He'll just take care of the leftovers. No, God wants to take care of the whole shebang. The issue is we just don't give it to Him. Trust Him completely. I would tell you this tonight, dear Christian, if you can trust Him completely with your eternity, you can trust Him tonight completely with every moment of your daily life. If you can trust Him to keep you from the flames of hell, we can trust Him to take care of our needs. We can trust Him to take care of uh, empowering us and strengthening us to, to, uh, to, to do every mundane thing in our life, to even doing the most extraordinary spiritual things of witnessing and praying and everything that He would have for us. The first Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. As a matter of fact, what I would tell you tonight is God is not so much looking for your sacrifice as He is your surrender. There is no sacrifice unto the Lord. There is no being a living sacrifice until there is faithful surrender. When we faithfully surrender our life to Him, that becomes and makes us the living sacrifice for Him to use in the first place. You and I think that we've got to beat ourselves to death to try to please God. We don't have to. Jesus was the one that was beat to death. Here's what you and I must do. We surrender our will to His will. We surrender by faith to Him. And what we find is that is the greatest sacrifice, a sweet-smelling savor to God that we depend upon Him for everything. Now Noah's first obedience is seen in Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. You could probably see it on the same page of your Bible there. It says, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. That's pretty good, isn't it? He obeyed God's Word to build the ark according, not to his own instructions, but to the instructions that God had given to him. Noah's second obedience that we find, except for that continued faithfulness for 120 years to beat away and preach away, we find is in Genesis 7-5 by faithfully entering into the ark with his family and the animals that God had brought to him. Where is this at here? Isn't it? Oh, here we go. Okay, we're making it further than I thought, y'all. That's pretty good. I'm, I'm as surprised as y'all are, to be honest with you. Amen. Look at that. <laughs> now, here's what we got. Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. There's absolute faith. Absolute surrender to the Lord. Noah realizes not only that his safety is in that ark, but he realizes that his entire life is in that ark. He realizes that his entire life, his well-being, his future... It is dependent upon God and God alone. Therefore, He's going to do what God has to say. Now, let me ask you tonight. Do you believe that your life is dependent upon God? Of course. We'd all say that. So here's the simple remedy. Do all that God's commanded you to do. Now, that's the hard part, isn't it? Now, why is it so hard? Well, it's easy. Here's why. There is a great battle, moment by moment, 
between your flesh and the faith of the Spirit of God inside. There is this constant war going on that you want to do what, as we talked about earlier, that Cammie just didn't like or understand. Well, you've got to stick your arm out that window for the rain. <laughs> you stick your arm out, right? We still want the flesh. And that will profit us nothing. Here, if you and I want to do all that God has commanded us to do, you say, well, I can't. God would say, you're right. Not on your own, you can't. This is why we must depend upon the Spirit of God to do what only He can do, and that's live the life of Christ to obey in us and through us. But the only way that we'll do this is by surrendering our will to His, not just daily, not just one time a year, not just on Sundays at an altar, but moment by moment. We give everything to the Lord. Every breath, every mundane occupation and duty that we have, every spiritual duty, every command, Lord, in my flesh, I can't obey You. The Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Lord, help me. Now, you and I, we would all say tonight that we believe that God desires to help His children. No. Do you think God wants to help you obey Him? Yes. Absolutely. Why would He, want, why would he not want to help you obey Him? Wouldn't make much sense, would it? This is why God has given us every piece of equipment and enablement that we need to obey Him. He's given us His Word. He's given us uh, prayer. He's given us the position of being in Christ. He's given us His very presence indwelling us moment by moment, not just there to convict us and to bop us on the head when we do wrong, but to empower us to do that which is right. As we see tonight clearly, the life of Noah Faith and surrender is absolutely key. Pure faith trusts and obeys the Word of God in all things. And as we're told, faith without works is dead, but works without faith is just as dead. Life comes from faith in the work of God. As we see verses 6-9 through nine tonight, and we'll go ahead and get through it. I know that sounds like a lot, but when we see this, this is sort of giving us just the details about who all is getting on the ark and what this looks like. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. Let's do a little head count tonight. Who all 600 years old tonight? How many of you feel like you're 600 years old? <laughs> a couple of you, alright. <laughs> now, I want you to know this tonight. I don't know what the average age is here tonight. I would guess looking out at the crowd, maybe about 35. That sound good to y'all? Alright, sounds pretty good. <laughs> alright. Alright, you got it. It can be whatever you want, but you know what? Tonight, here's the point. You can be 600 years old and God can still use you. You can be 6 years old and God can use you. You can be 60 years old and God can use you. 600 and everything in between. If you simply look to the Lord by faith and trust in His Word and His work in your life, God can use you. Now, He might not call you to build a boat for 120 years and take every animal two by two onto a boat and sit there for 40 days and 40 nights while it rains and everybody else dies and you sit in that boat but He's called you to lead your homes. He's called you to win your family and win your neighbors. He's called you to be faithful to your church, faithful to, your, to the Word that's been given. Sorensen writes, Moreover, it is noted that Noah was 600 years old when the flood began. It is interesting to note that Noah apparently began the work on the ark when he was about 480 years old. His sons were born when he was, around, when he was 500 years old in chapter 5, verse 32. We find that God had had His hand over all 
aspects of Noah's life, and his hand is over every aspect of your life. There's not one detail in your life that has not passed through the hand of Almighty God. Another commentator writes about this little passage here, looking as he goes. Noah six years old, when the flood waters was upon the earth, Noah went in, and his sons and his wife and his wife's sons and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean beasts and of the beasts that are not clean of the fowls of everything that creepeth upon the earth and went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. God entrusts Noah with an immense responsibility simply because God called and Noah answered. One commentator writes, what is most apparent of the description in the description of the onset of the flood is the focus of the author on the occupants of the ark. With great detail, the procession of those entering the ark passes by the impatient eyes of the modern reader. Noah's age, the month, the day of the begging of the rain, the source of the waters, the kinds of animals and their number, no piece of information <clears throat> is unimportant if it contributes to the author's purpose of holding the scene before the eyes of the reader as long as literally possible. The author wants his readers to take a good hard look at the ark and its importance in developing the character of Noah's trust in God. The author wants the reader to consider every detail. Now, why do we put that in here tonight? It's because of this. God cares about every detail of your life. Not only does He know about every detail of your life, He cares about every detail of your life. Now, we trust that God knows the, the, the number of grains of sand and He knows all the stars and the billions times billions of galaxies and he's numbered them and named them he knows them all there's not a molecule in the world that that is rogue god knows it all but he cares about it all if god didn't care about his creation the creation would collapse we'd fall forever this is how i know god cares that god is constantly developing the character and faith of the men that He has chooses to use and His theocratic kingdom throughout this Old Testament, New Testament, and even our day-to-day -day life, all of these individuals by faith will not only be used of God in their present situation, but ultimately to point to the coming promised seed who is the prophet, priest, and king forever, Jesus Christ the Lord. This is why we find tonight the great hope for you and I that every detail of your life God is using to develop your faith and character and trust in Him. God, in everything in your life, every detail from the victories to the most horrible dark valleys of defeat that you go through and immense suffering and pain, God is using to develop your faith and your character, your trust in Him. He is even developing your usability for His glory and His kingdom, for His namesake. God is using it. The redemption story, source, and sustainer is God Himself. Now you and I, by grace through faith, look into Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith and the shepherd of our souls. Here as we wrap up this passage, we find that the old world is being destroyed to usher in mankind's gracious second chance. But even as we get to Genesis 7, God has already given mankind much more than a second chance, hasn't He? He's given you and I much more than a second chance. He's a God not of second chances as is often said. He's a God of infinite chances because His mercy is never ending. It continues 
continues, it's as everlasting as He is. Though we know that sin will continue after the flood, we now, as 2 Peter 3.13 tells us, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Tonight, may our eyes as we sit in the ark, while we sit in the safety of Christ, may we long and look forward to His return by faith. May we keep looking forward and keep looking upward and outward for the coming of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night. We're grateful that we could study Your Word. And Lord, even more so that it could touch our hearts, that it could give us what is needed. Lord, help us to surrender by faith to You that we'd be used of You for Your honor and for Your glory. And we pray that You'd meet the need of every person in this place. And as we go from this place, Lord, that we'd be used of You and that we'd be obedient to You in all things. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we hope to see you guys Sunday morning. Yes, sir.